Chapter 8. I am a demon. I was sorting through the low points of my life Rolodex to see where to file this. Flipping past abortions, broken hearts, car wrecks, evictions, flat tires, lies I told to my grandma and venereal diseases, I came upon those events that were a little more difficult to allocate. How do you even classify rifling through your own trash bags in the dumpster behind your apartment in search of a syringe that was in working order? I filed that under unpleasant. Then there was the rather complicated matter of the terminal cancer patient who lived across the hall from us. A couple times a week I'd go over in the afternoons when I woke up and do little chores for him, like take out the trash, wash a few dishes, or run down to the deli and pick up some milk and lunch meat. He'd sit there and listen to old jazz records while smoking cigarettes and talking about the old days. Occasionally, when his medication would cloud his manners, he would mention how fine my girlfriend's ass was and how he would tear that little white girl up. I would stand in the kitchen drying a bowl with his dish towel and smile and nod and then change the direction of the conversation by asking about what we were listening to. Sometimes I would pretend that I was working at a retirement home for Black Panthers, and he would read to me from Mao's little red book as I cleaned his guns when his arthritis was acting up. It was all very heartwarming and fuzzy until he dozed off. The first time I went over there, I was being a good citizen, honest. The first time I used his bathroom, it was legitimate and coincidental. But then I have that thing about medicine cabinets. When I opened his... Everything changed. There they stood like tiny glass soldiers fallen into rank, dozens of bottles of morphine. Maybe I heard a chorus of angels singing. Maybe I didn't. The next time I went over, I had several syringes neatly tucked in my jacket, and when I heard him quietly snoring in time with Coltrane, I set down his broom and dustpan and went to work. I siphoned half the contents of four or five bottles and refilled them with tap water. This went on for as long as Mr. Lewis did, which, for reasons I'm sure legitimate and coincidental, was only a couple more weeks. Sure, it was stealing, but it was so much more than that. I filed that under remorse. When your mom comes in your room and catches you masturbating to a picture of your cousin, poor planning. When the doctor at the clinic has grown so weary of seeing you that she provides you with supplies and instructions on how to burn off your genital warts at home, gross. Some misconduct just isn't easy to catalog. These are the kinds of things one thinks about while trapped in a detox center sitting on the toilet with your ass leaking like an old faucet at six in the morning. If I were lucky, this would be the most soul-crushing and demoralizing experience of my life. The low points of my life Rolodex was meticulous in its upkeep. The joyous moments sat like a poorly organized photo album in the corner of a dusty closet next to a high school yearbook I'd never looked at. I would use this story to one-up some fool in a bar somewhere someday who thinks he's had it rough. I wrote the word ugly at the top of the card in large red marker and slid it through the slot in the front of my skull. I cradled my head in the palms of my hands and found a couple of minutes of sleep. Morning, Paul, a voice blared through the door. Like most of us graveyard shifters, Martin was louder at dawn than normal people. Our lack of interaction with folks during the wee hours can make us seem abrasive to the newly risen. I got up, wiped, 
pulled up my pajama pants as quickly as possible, and burst out of the bathroom door. The reception area was empty except for Martin, grinning over a stack of paperwork. With his reading glasses on, he appeared more college professor-like than biker. Paul? As in Nurse Paul? I asked, looking back and forth down the hallway. Yeah, kid. He's in his office, but he doesn't open for business until seven or so. He asked me how I was feeling, but I was already marching down the hall, choosing to focus my energy on clenching my ass cheeks rather than making chit-chat. The door was ajar, but hardly welcoming. I pushed it in a bit and stuck my head in. He was sitting at his desk with his back to me, sorting through last evening's urine samples. What a fucking way to start out your workday. He unscrewed the lid of his thermos, poured a cup, and then held a shot glass-sized plastic container of piss at arm's length so he could read the name on it. At least Martin could admit when his eyesight was going. Paul wrote some notes in a file, then repeated the process over and over till the samples on the tray had dwindled by half. Due to a faulty lid or fate's cruel sense of humor or just plain old bad luck, the next container he held up exploded, covering his hand, desk calendar, and coffee cup in crackhead urine. God damn it! The only way the morning could have gotten any worse for him was if he had to deal with the likes of me. Hello, Jimmy, I said. Utterly defeated, he hung his head and let out a deep sigh that segued into a whimper. Suddenly, he smashed his fist into the filing cabinet. He tore a week's worth of pages out of his desk calendar, balled them up, and dropped them in his waste bin. Just when I thought his little tantrum was done, he cleared all the pee samples, files, and a stapler off his desk and onto the floor with one mighty swoop of his forearm. He put his head in his hands and began to weep. I went in and closed the door behind me, paused for dramatic effect, and then locked the door making sure he heard it. There was a picture of the wife sitting on a bookshelf next to a box of tissue. I took them both over and sat on his desk so he would have to look at me. I pulled out a couple of tissues and offered them to the quivering, lugubrious wreck, but I kept the framed picture for closer examination. No kids, I asked. He looked up at me for the first time and shook his head. She's a lovely woman, Jimmy. What does she do? He cleared his throat. <clears throat> She's a lawyer. I wasn't just blowing smoke up his ass. She was attractive. She was a brunette with smoky brown eyes, probably quite stunning in her younger days. She was elegant and statuesque, way out of Jimmy's league. Let me guess, I continued. You met in college, you were pre-med, and she was pre-law. Yeah, he said. He tried to look at me with maybe a half a second's worth of hope that I was somehow speaking to him as any kind of equal. Then apparently you didn't quite live up to your potential now, did you? He dabbed his eyes with the tissue, blew his nose, and tried to compose himself. I picked up the engraved nameplate on his desk and read it. Paul DeFranco, RN. But judging from the car you drive and the amount of money you have to throw around getting your twisted little kicks, she must have done very well for herself, I said. He started blubbering again. I handed him some more tissue. How long do you suppose it'll take me to hunt down a lady lawyer named DeFranco in town? Ten minutes? Fifteen minutes? I asked. Fuck! He cried, 
banging his forehead on the desk and leaving it there. And then Nurse Paul did something I didn't think possible. He stunned me. Right then and there, that little fuck did something that stopped me right in my tracks and made me think how completely foreign are the worlds right around us. In a sort of whispered lament, Nurse Paul called me a butthole. I didn't know what to do. Shit or go blind seemed to be the options. But then my eye snagged itself on an interesting-looking cabinet with a padlock on it across the room from the bookshelf. I slid off the desk, walked over to it, and fingered the lock. As terrible as this is, and I'm talking about my situation, not yours, I'm pretty sure that I'll live through it, I said. I am not so sure that you will fare as well. What do you want, Charlie? he asked, not even bothering to lift his head from his desk. Drugs, Doc. I want drugs.